Hi, I'm Cindy Zhang, and this is Tell Me Muse, a podcast where I interview recent McGill graduates to figure out what exactly is classics. Today, I'm speaking with Janam Perkins about the Witai Nekisque Potestas, which is the power of a Roman father over the life and death of his children. Essentially, this was kind of a loophole in the Roman legal system in the early Republican age, whereby a father could kill his children, and if he had a good enough reason for doing so, i.e. the protection of the state, he could actually get away with murder scot-free. Janan is interested in Roman history, so we're going to be looking at different Roman authors and historians who give us examples of fathers who have used their power over their children to kill them with what was considered just cause, justa causa. And through these sources, we're able to trace sort of the changing evaluation that later Roman authors had on this early Republican practice. So all of the sources that we're drawing from today come from the early imperial age, which is the late 1st century BCE, all the way to the 4th century CE with Orosius, who is our latest source. So these historians are all talking about cases that happened in the early republic, centuries before they lived, and they all have their own agenda when they're writing their histories. Some of them are moralizing agendas, either praising the Roman Republic some of them, especially the later writers like Cassius Dio and Erosius, are more critical about this practice and so frame it in a negative light. One point that Janan and I were discussing throughout this interview and I hope to make clear is a question that really strikes at the heart of studying ancient history when you have such limited sources. One of the main problems that classicists have to tackle is how to make use of the sources that we do have and how to critically analyze them. I think one of the key things that I've learned about ancient history is that you have to analyze ancient sources in a different way from how you would look at modern sources. For authors like Livy and Valerius Maximus, they wrote their histories with a goal in mind, and sometimes that is a moral goal to show what a good Roman was or to show the positive sides of the Roman Republic. And for other authors, such as Orosius, who was writing later and in a largely Christian empire, to show sort of Roman degradation and the moral sins of Romans. So always in these sources, we have to be careful of an overarching agenda that the historian had that motivates their selection of stories they're going to include and how they present those stories. Some of these stories, especially the ones of the early Republic, are going to be apocryphal. But there is a danger of dismissing these sources simply because some stories they present might be exaggerated. Because there is other information that we can gather from the same sources. Things like, why is it that Livy presents this case to us, and why does he present it in the way that he does? What does the kind of language that Livy use to depict the scene tell us about how he views the Republic and what he thought an ideal Roman citizen should be like? These are all key pieces of information into the psychology of ancient historians. And this is distinct from the whole problem of whether or not the stories they told were factually accurate or not. These are the kinds of questions that we should be asking when we approach an ancient source, and there is a lot buried in these narratives. Today, we are focusing just on one aspect, what we would today call filicide, where a father kills his child. Janan will give us the whole rundown and several case studies of how this occurred in Republican Rome. There are some juicy tales awaiting us, so without further ado, I present to you Janan Perkins. Hello! 
Janan, who are you? What are your hobbies? Where are you from? Tell us about yourself. Oh my goodness. Well, hello. My name is Janan Perkins. I am from Los Angeles, California, and made my way up to Montreal about, oh my God, six years ago. (laughs) That's crazy. Just kind of on a whim. I was supposed to go to a school out in the States and then was like, actually, Montreal is a lot more fun. Yeah, got into classics by accident. And here we are halfway through a master's degree. (laughs) Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that? How did you end up in classics? How did you end up at McGill? Anything along the way that changed your mind, really? I guess it started kind of really young. So my grandmother was born in Istanbul and lived there for a long, long, long time. My dad lived in Ankara, so I was kind of always aware of kind of the history of the region, definitely the mythology, all of these kinds of aspects, I think, that were kind of watered down for a child. And I was always really interested in that, but I never really had any plans of pursuing it specifically. So when I was applying to colleges, I'm sorry, universities, (laughs) I was actually supposed to go to art school like for studio art. And then last minute decided actually that is not at all what I want to do. And kind of on a whim, i like had visited Montreal when I was a kid with my dad and loved it, but never really thought too much of it until I had a friend in high school who was kind of like, oh, like you should check out Miguel. Like it's a really cool school. Montreal is awesome. So I did. And then after I got accepted, I came to visit and I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is absolutely where I need to be. But yeah, so then my first class ever in university was Michael Fronda's ancient Mediterranean history class. And I loved it. It was amazing. And then I kind of got roped into Sirois ancient Greek literature. I don't know, those kind of compounded. And I met, I'm not sure if you remember, Indiana. So she was a classics major my year. She was also on CSA with us and we became like best friends. And so She was already doing classics because she had a really impactful Latin teacher in high school. And yeah, I just kind of got roped into it. And then intro Latin broke me, but now I love it and I'm teaching it in the fall. So, you know, (laughs) shit happens. It just works like that. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So where are you now? What are you studying? Did you continue on with the classics? Yes. Yes. So currently, well, okay. So Graduated 2020, mid-pandemic, big yikes, and then ended up doing a post-bac at UCLA for like the 2020-2021 school year. And it worked out really well because I'm originally from LA, so I kind of just got to, even though it was all online, it was still nice to, I don't know, be around (laughs) the campus. Yeah, so I did that. And then during last school year, I applied for master's programs, mostly in the US, a couple PhD programs, and ended up settling on CU Boulder here in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, right at the foothills of the Rockies. And so I am about halfway through my two-year master's program. So I'm taking classes and teaching and doing all of that fun MA stuff. (laughs) Do you have a certain area of concentration in your MA program? Yeah, yeah. So I am kind of split right between the Latin and it's called the classical antiquities track. So it's not art and archaeology. It's not philology. It's kind of everything else smashed together. And so I have kind of two tracks within it, the Roman history track and then the Latin language track. And so specifically within Roman history, I'm very interested in mid to late Republican historiography, as well as kind of like crime and punishment in Rome. So it's kind of a joke within the department that if there's an atrocity, just let Janon know and she'll know all about it. (laughs) Right. And today we're going to be talking about one of those atrocities. I know. (laughs) It's so much fun. (laughs) I mean, it's not, and it's horrible. No, but the concept of it is really eye-catching. And it's one of these things that I think draws people to classics. It's either the captivating storytelling abilities or like, oh my gosh, they were so weird. 
I know. So I also want to mention that I think uh, your area of research is also really interesting because it kind of overlaps literature and history and what we can know of historic facts that occurred in the ancient world. And I just wanted to highlight this because I think it really shows how interdisciplinary classics as a study really is that you can't like neatly divide what you read in sources such as Livy, which we're going to talk about, and people like Valerius Maximus, because more or less they're writing histories, but they're also moralizing to a certain extent. There may be stylizations involved. Absolutely. So it's like, while analyzing these sources, you have to approach it perhaps as literature and then not take everything super seriously, but then try to also find kernels of truth within those sources. Like, I'm wondering about your methodology. Like, how do you balance that? So I think there are two extremes that are kind of very easy to fall into of, okay, well, Livy wrote this, so it must be true. And then just to take Livy for as an example, or Livy wrote this, but we can't possibly believe anything he says. (laughs) And I think it's really important to kind of take a middle ground between those two extremes of saying, okay, he wrote this, but more than just what he wrote, let's take into consideration his context who he's writing for, why specifically he's writing, why would he include this specific episode if it's not of particular interest to kind of the overarching history of Rome? Like, why is this detail significant? And then I guess working backwards from that and going, okay, so if we take all of those things into consideration, now let's actually look at the text, see what he says, look at the language that he uses, specifically in Latin or if we're not talking about Libby, whatever kind of language we're talking about and saying, okay, well, number one, how does this kind of fit into the context of broader themes? Number two, how does the language specifically relate to other instances that might have some kind of overlap and how does that fit into the overall framework? And then number three, like, what does that actually tell us? And even if we are going to say, okay, this absolutely didn't happen, then kind of questioning, okay, well, what can it tell us? Like, what's important about this episode? Exactly. I think it's sometimes unclear which stories are more or less apocryphal and which ones are like testifiable, but the whole training and the process that goes into analyzing these sources and trying to reconstruct some kind of history that actually happened, or at least what the Romans believed to be important norms uh, and ways that you should act in telling stories that might not be true. I think it's really important. And it's something that like these skills, I want to say are specific to classics to a certain degree, because we're working with such limited ancient sources. Yeah. I mean, the things that we consider primary sources often come hundreds of years after the alleged event, which is (laughs) in other forms of scholarship or history, those would absolutely not be considered primary sources. So it's always an interesting kind of juggling act, I'd say. (laughs) You mentioned the importance of looking at the original language and what those terms in Latin meant to to the Romans. So one of the terms that's really important for this paper that we're going to talk about is vitae necisque potestas. So could you give us the best English translation that we have of it and what it kind of meant for the Romans? Yeah, so essentially, vita necklace potestas is like power over life and death, right? And so essentially, it means that the paterfamilias has kind of this complete control over every member of his family, so including his spouse, his children, grandchildren, enslaved people within his household. And so this isn't just kind of like power over finances or contracts or any kind of legal power. It's quite literally to the extent that they have power to kill their own child. And so if we break it down, right, like we tie life, necus, like death, potestas, power, so power of life and death. In your paper, you talk mostly about events in Republican Rome of fathers using their powers to kill their children without necessarily any consequences from the state for doing so. So I'm wondering, does this practice originate in kind of Republican Rome or do we have more ancient precedents of it? Yeah, so we actually have evidence of this all the way from the 12 tables. So there's a whole section kind of dedicated to the rights of like the pater familias. And so there there are a few things, right? So there's like the power essentially of like if a father has like a kind of fucked up, but like I mean it's entirely fucked up. That's kind of the whole point. 
but like if there's a dreadfully deformed child, then that child must be put to death. And so there's also the note of essentially just like complete power of the father over the people within his household. So we do see this like power over life and death as well as this very strong mention of the patria potestas. And so the 12 tables goes back to like, like the fifth century BCE. So just slightly before the Roman Republic was established. Exactly. Yeah. So the first kind of legal code that we have for Rome, and it also kind of predates any of our, let's say, more reliable historical sources. <laughs> right. So can we talk a bit about these sources that you use? Uh, you focus mainly on four. So there's Livy, Valerius Maximus, Cassius Dio, and Orosius. Could you tell us a little bit about each of them, what time period they're from, and what kind of work you're drawing from? Yeah, so essentially with these four authors, they kind of, number one, come from very different times. They're writing in different styles, different kind of eras. They also take very interestingly different, they have different views of this practice of, just to reiterate, a father just like murdering his kids. So Livy and Valerius Maximus kind of take the most accepting approach to the practice, which is really interesting considering that they come from the early empire, but it does also kind of make sense given they also have very strict moral objectives, right? So Valerius Maximus essentially as a source kind of wants to collect stories that serve as exempla for his audience. So an exemplum is kind of like, it's not quite a fable, but it's kind of fable adjacent, I'd say. So it's essentially like the story of a specific person and something that they do that kind of acts as a moral guide, either in a positive or negative way. And so it's kind of these stories that are very moralizing, talking about the things that are very important to Roman kind of morality and I guess like ethical structure, right? So when you look at Valerius Maximus, it's kind of divided up into different sections. Like, so each section is kind of like, this is like about religion. And here are people who either did really, really good religious things or really, really bad religious things. So you'd like take great figures from the past and then to whatever degree you can kind of reconstruct their story that shows whether they were for the Republic, for the preservation of the state or against it. And then um, you go, that is an exemplum either of a good man or of a bad man. Exactly, exactly. And so you can also break it down as to like, okay, that's an exemplum of fides, like whatever specific value an author is trying to convey, they can do that through exemplum saying like, oh, hey, look at this guy. He killed his own son because he went against orders, right? So like, he's not killing him through patria potestas, he's killing him as a general. He's reaching beyond his family values and his own kind of love for his children in order to maintain the standards of the Roman army. Right. So there's this bigger moralizing current running through Valerius Maximus's source. Yes, very much, very much. Yeah. His whole source is essentially a compendium of exemplum. They're like very short little kind of like paragraphs of different figures and why they exemplify a certain value. So it's, it's really cool. It's a fun little like guidebook of how to be a good Roman. <laughs> According to Valerius Maximus. According to Valerius Maximus, exactly. Yes. And then we have Libby and oh, I have such mixed feelings about Libby. I love him. I love him. But oh my goodness, when I was in Professor Fronda's Rise of Rome class, we only read Libby for 12 weeks straight. And that was a lot, but it was okay. It was one of, if not my favorite class at McGill. Definitely the most impactful in terms of kind of where my kind of research interests are. We bought, I think, all of the extant Livy. You're joking. No, I, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Like I have the full collection lined up on my bookshelf here in Colorado. But anyway, Livy, again, writing in the early empire is very interested in kind of recounting the moral decline of Rome from these mythic origins up until the Augustan age. And so we see a lot of this kind of, again, especially in the mythic kind of origins, we see a lot of moralizing 
language surrounding specific figures. And so again, in these cases, which is really, really interesting, we see kind of this positive view of the Wita Nequisque Potestas, which is just fascinating, right? Because you have this on the one hand, the upholding of the family is so incredibly important. We have like the pater patriae, right? And like, so there's this whole kind of notion of like patriarchy and like these patriarchal figures being so incredibly important for the maintenance and like upholding of Rome on the grander scale, but then also like within these individual family units. And so even though you have this incredible dedication to family, you also have these incredible acts of violence against the family, but they do also go hand in hand, which is like the really, really hard thing, I think, for modern audiences to grasp, right? Right. It's the pitting of what's required by the state that you do as a good Roman man and what's required of your family. Yeah. And the kind of really messed up thing is like, oftentimes those things kind of go hand in hand, right? Like your paternal love either leads you to these extremes for the sake of your family, or like you said, on a larger scale for the sake of Rome. And so it's just this really interesting kind of dichotomy. Well, I guess modern dichotomy. Yeah. But this begins to change a bit with Cassius Dio? Yes, yes, yes. So Cassius Dio is Greek. I mean, he, he does become a Roman senator, but he's Greek and he writes during the second and third centuries CE. And so it's like very, very, very imperial. And so kind of like Valerius Maximus and Livy, he had fewer biases towards the inherent morality of Republican practices. So like, whereas Livy and Valerius Maximus are kind of looking back at the Republic being like, oh, it might've been severe, but it was morally correct. Cassius Dio does not have those same kind of feelings. And that's very evident in the way that he writes. But he's also interesting because he kind of tries to take out the prejudices in his sources. And so where we might think that the prejudices would be negative, it's kind of the positive views of killing your kids, which is interesting. Mm. Just trying to neutralize the entire practice in itself. Exactly, exactly. So it's yeah, trying to create neutrality. Absolutely. And then we have Orosius, who, again, many, many years later, writing in the late empire, kind of upon suggestion of Augustine, he writes his work as a companion to the city of God. And he is essentially, he again brings in these moralistic judgments, but now from a Christian perspective. And so it's really fun because his whole thing is like trying to talk about the evils committed by the Romans as a result of their paganism, right? And so you have Valerius Maximus on the one kind of moral extreme of like, this is amazing. This is a great thing to do for the Republic. And then on the other hand, you have Erosius who's writing again on this kind of moralistic extreme, but in regard to like, this is the worst thing you could do. Look how evil the Romans are because they are pagan and they don't believe in God. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. Can you give us some snippets, just like sample tasters of the different stories we get from these different sources of different fathers exercising their right over their children's right to live, basically, and show us some of the variability that we get through time? Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to do it in like chronological order of how it happened during the Republic rather than from chronological perspective of the authors, right? All right. So the first one we get essentially is from Valerius Maximus. In book five of memorable doings and sayings on the severity of fathers, he talks about this guy named Cassius who kills his son for aspiring to kingship. And so essentially the son has proposed an agrarian reform, God forbid, and became a favored politician. Oh my God, can we say the guy? So there's like no mention of a public case against the son, but the father's like, actually, I hate my kid for doing this. And so he kills him. I mean, it's a little odd, right? Because the state's like, oh no, it's like not that bad. Like, don't worry about it. Like, it's fine. It's not even that he's acquitted. We're just like not going to indict him at all. And his dad's like, no, fuck this kid. But it's interesting too, right? Because his son is like a tribune of the plebs when he commits these crimes. So he has this like high ranking government position, but then he's still under the authority of his father. But 
the dad, Cassius, waits until his son's no longer in power. And then apparently all of his family's like, yeah, you should kill him. Then he kills him. It's kind of strange that it's almost as if the father can't touch his son when he's in like a sacrosanct public position. But then public interests still motivate his actions in the private sphere after his son is no longer in that government position, no longer protected through the sacred uh, sacrosanct, you can't touch me kind of law. And so he's now a private citizen, but then the father Mm -hmm. still kills him and doesn't get punished for it for a public motive, i.e. don't be a king. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So he essentially like punishes his son for a political crime, but within like a domestic court, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's like the the blending of how the Romans perceived their world when we try to categorize it so distinctly as separate between private and public. Interesting. Okay, so do you know what century this was from, this story? Um, yeah, so it was from the 5th century BC. So yeah, shaky times for the Republic, just getting established. <laughs> yeah. But then, okay, so the other interesting thing is like since Valerius Maximus is concise, let's say, hmm. We don't actually know the father's position within like broader Roman authority. So we don't really know if like his father was also kind of in a specific governmental position. We don't really know about that. So that might also alter things. But I think the most notable thing is that he was punished after he had completed his term, which I think is the most important part, right? Because now he is once again, a private citizen being punished in the domestic sphere by his father rather than as an elected official through kind of like the civic Roman lens. Yeah. All right, give me another one. Okay, so now we have Livy. We've got our man. We've got Livy again talking about the 5th century, this time 451. And so we have El Virginius, Lucius, for those who like to hear the full names. And he has this daughter named Virginia, but it's with an E. So whatever. So essentially, okay, so this is the one that pisses me off, right? Because she actually doesn't do anything wrong and he still kills her. So Appius Claudius is one of the decamvirs. And so he comes up with this, like, I don't know, it feels like a home alone style, like, like sneaky plan, right? So essentially he's like, okay, I want this lady, but she's a freeborn woman. How am I going to do this? Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I've got this one guy and he works for me. But I'm going to say that she's actually one of his slaves. So then she has to do what he says. And then he can just give her to me. It's just like so convoluted and ridiculous. I love it. But so then Virginius, he finds out about this. And he's like, oh, no, I can't let my daughter be raped by this guy. So what am I going to do? Oh, I know I'm going to kill her. And then her purity will be saved forever. And I'm just like, bro. Like, I feel like there are so many other ways to save your daughter than to just, like, kill her. But whatever. I'm not a 5th century Roman father. I guess I don't get it. But anyway, so then we see this, like, public outrage over her death, and it leads to the overthrow of the Decemvirs. Hello, hello. Am I hearing the rape of Lucretia anywhere? We see this other kind of, like, allusion to another story of, like, the death of an honorable woman over having her, like, purity called into question as kind of a catalyst for the overthrow of a tyrannical rule, which is interesting. But here we see Virginius killing his daughter rather than her taking her own life. And so then we see it's kind of like, oh, he's acting out of love, like, protecting her, even though she didn't do anything wrong. And oh, uh oh political revolution yikes so again a little wishy-washy because there's really no like just cause or used to causa for her death and then after he kills her he's like crying he's like oh my god I'm not a parasite everyone forgive me I'm sorry and all the people are like you're right you should have killed her you did the right thing dude don't worry we love you So I wonder for this story in particular, because of that link to Lucretia, whom you mentioned, so she is also like an earlier apocryphal story. She, as you say, is a noblewoman who gets raped by the son of the last king of Rome. And so her death, her suicide, 
leads to the revolution that overthrew the monarchy mm-hmm. in Rome and led to the Republic in one way or another. So there's that link between Lucretia and Virginia because her death led to sort of this plebeian revolt. Because the man who had tried to rape her or claimed that she was his slave, Appius, he's one of these decimweers, so one of the, like the oligarchic rulers. It's crazy. It's messed up because he brings her to court and her father to court while he is the judge who mm-hmm. is presiding over this case, at the same time also a claimant in the case. So I'm wondering here, is the focus of the story more on the power of the father over his daughter's life, or is it more about the tyranny of the government and the need to overthrow it. And Virginia is just sort of a cog in this machine and a trope of some sort. Absolutely. I think that's a really great thing to kind of bring out of it, right? If we didn't have kind of this precursor of Lucretia, it might not be so clear. But since we know that story and we know kind of the effects of that, it kind of gets framed in this way as like a paterfamilias forsakes his paternal affection and like risks his own kind of like safety or like social standing, let's say, in order to like restore the Republic and kind of overthrow this tyrannical leadership. And so we see this importance of Republic over family. And she kind of like serves as martyr to that. Right. And there is also that distinction between parricide and this killing through the potestas vitae. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so essentially, parricide is the act of killing a member of your own family. And so it's kind of like the overarching theme in which like filicide or patricide, matricide, any of those kind of like more specific terms fall. So it's kind of the overarching killing a direct member of your family. And so it was the worst of all of the like non-political crimes. So the punishment for that, it was called the pointy coule. And it's like the punishment of the sack, which it's so much fun. So essentially the criminal is thrown into a river, right? Or the sea, but he's in like this sack and inside it is a monkey, a dog, a snake, and like a rooster. Is it like either or, or just- No, 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 no. No, and, and. So it's like him in this sack with these four animals, but he's wearing like wooden shoes and a wolf cap. I don't know where they would just have monkeys on hand, just like available should anyone kill a member of their family without just cause, but there you have it. But so, okay, so this would happen if they committed parasite, but Parasite is distinctly different from like killing a child through the use of vitae nequisque potestas. And so the kind of defining feature of making that differentiation is a use to causa, right? So if the father had this just cause, he would not be considered a parasite. And so most often that's kind of like if their child has committed a crime. And so that's why the case for Virginia is so tricky, right? Because she hasn't actually committed a crime, but he's still protecting her through patria potestas. And so that's why there's that question of him like begging his fellow Romans to not consider him a parasite. It's so interesting and tricky, I think, because at the same time, the state is giving the father the right and the state is expecting that the father knows what is the best thing to do for his children but when something sort of ambiguous comes up like the case of virginia then he has to go back to the people and sort of appeal to them and justify what he did i guess i'm wondering if you see in this sort of a difference in the roman perception of the self and if the children were considered as individual lives or as part of a whole such that if the father kills the child for a just reason, a justa causa, and he can justify it as being good for the state, then he doesn't suffer consequences for the loss of a life. Whereas to us, this kind of concept sounds very foreign and barbaric and cruel because we have more of like an individualistic outlook on life. And so we take every single life as an individual and sacred to a certain extent. Uh, Do you see any of that in the sources? Yeah, no, entirely. I mean, I think we see it kind of throughout, especially with Valerius Maximus and Libby of like, 
I mean, in the Valerius Maximus, we don't actually even get his son's name. And then in the Livy with Virginius and Virginia, I mean, it kind of feels like in like book one of the Iliad, right? Of like, you have Chryseis and then you have his daughter who everyone just calls Chryseis, even though she doesn't have a name. So it kind of feels like one of those things of like, the child is less important than the father. And so it's, because I think we, we've talked about it a little bit already, right? Of like how the father in charge of his family kind of is a political unit in terms of like upholding the Republic. And so the most noble thing to do, at least for kind of looking at these Republican ideals is to uphold the Republic ahead of your family and like sacrificing paternal affection, sacrificing your family, members of your family, whatever, for the good of the Republic, to make sure that the Republic is not kind of polluted by any specific crime, or at least to restore it. So how often can we tell that this actually happened in the Republic? Because these stories more or less sound a little bit apocryphal, like some of it might have actually happened, but they're for sure exaggerated and they're emphasized and dramatized uh, for Livia and Valerius Maximus. Um, And also just the absurd amount of animals you need to punish people for killing their children. It just seems very impractical. It doesn't feel like it happened a lot. Do we have any sort of sources that tell us how often the state had to deal with fathers killing their children on behalf of the state? I don't think we do. I think the only thing we see is kind of like these allusions to it through Erosius and Cassius Dio, specifically more Erosius. Because again, like none of these actually talk about the same crime. So Erosius talks about a man killing his son after like his son has committed a theft, but this is like in the third century, right? So it's like about 230 years after Libby's story. So it's taking place in like 220. And so, I mean, he takes it as representative of Roman morality as a whole, but doesn't necessarily say how often it happens. So would it be fair, in your opinion, to say that we learn from these literary sources, like what we can draw from them is more so the Roman perspective and the belief in how important the state is vis-a-vis sort of individual families and individual lives? I guess I'm just trying to overcome this problem of like, we're not entirely sure if what we read about in the sources actually occurred or not. But nevertheless, we can still learn something from analyzing them. So what do you see more or less as the big takeaway that you can get from these sources that are positive about the practice of killing children under the potestas vitae? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it is kind of very much along the lines of like, the state is the most important thing, right? Like if you are in a position to choose your family or choose the continuation or promotion of the Republic, then it is your fatherly duty to maintain the Republic because that's kind of the most important thing. And that's what we see in these sources, right? And it's kind of something that's very evident in many, many of the exemplar that are kind of published. And they all kind of follow these different themes. I mean, like you could put it down to a specific kind of action or quality or whatever you want to divide them, but we still have this plethora of exemplar of different things that kind of make up what it means to be Roman and these Roman values that are so important for maintaining the Republic. And kind of the moral high ground that the earlier Republic had from the imperial perspective of like, yes, they were harsh, but they did it to protect the Republic to make sure that the state was above all maintained. So we do start to see uh, a sort of like change in perspective about how this practice was viewed, especially with Cassius Dio. So what are some of the stories that he and Orosius tell us about the view more distantly removed from the Republic? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So again, Cassius Dio is working from an imperial perspective. He is of Greek origin, suddenly becomes a Roman senator, and he presents kind of like the most straightforward account of Oetai Nequis Quae Potestas. And so it's a story of Aulus Fulius in like the mid first century BC. So Aulus Fulius and several other men are convicted of a crime. And so his father decides to hold a private execution instead, even though his father is a private citizen. So kind of what we see is that 
there's none of this like moralizing language that we see in Valerius Maximus or Livy. Like if you look at the specific kind of like language, I mean, it's also in Greek, so already different, but there's nothing that kind of has an inherent moral standpoint. But we do see at least that there is an explanation of the practice, right? And so since he's writing in like the second and third centuries, it's very imperial, right? So he doesn't have that same kind of notion of the Republic that let's say Valerius Maximus or Livy would have had, especially kind of with Augustus. But he kind of explains it as, oh, this is something they used to do. So we see that by that time, at least, it had number one, fallen out of practice, because we don't see that same thing kind of happening with Livy and Valerius Maximus. So there could be an argument that even at that time, there were possibly some instances of it that we just don't have record of, but that the Roman people would have been at least aware of this as a kind of action that occurred, right? Because otherwise they wouldn't need an explanation for it. Whereas Cassius Dio provides that explanation kind of saying that it was at one point something that they did. They don't do it anymore because otherwise, why would you need the explanation? But it also shows that the protection of Rome over like paternal affection is no longer a typical value. So we do see that kind of shift, right? Away from these more specific like exempla. So without this kind of explanation, he kind of talks about why was it okay for a non-political figure to kill a private citizen? Well, because of the Wittai Nequis Potestas, which was not evidently understood. And so what's interesting here is that Alice Fulius was actually ruled guilty by Rome, but his father's power as Patria Potestas superseded the power of the Republic. So it was more important for the father to be able to kill his son in an act of like patria potestas than it was for the Republic to kill a citizen for committing a crime. So that's like a really interesting kind of like moment, right? Because you see like, again, a private citizen convicted of a crime and then rather than being executed by the state, which was obviously what was going to happen because as we know, Rome didn't really do jails or like imprisonment really. But then rather than letting that happen, his father decides, okay, no, actually it's my responsibility as his father to enact the Wittai Nequis Quae Potestas in order to maintain the Republic, keep his family protected. It's really unclear, right? Because Cassius Dio doesn't really have an understanding of the practice. So he's not able to give us this kind of moralistic view of why his father killed him. Right. So I assume this practice wasn't happening so much after the Republican era? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we know that because specifically he has to explain it, right? So like if they knew about what it was, he wouldn't have had to tell them. Right. All right. So what does Orosius tell us? Oh my gosh, it's so much fun. Okay. So believe it or not, the guy writing for Augustine, a companion of On the City of God, does not like this practice. Can you imagine? Who would have thought? Who would have thought? So, Orocious, there's a guy, his son commits a theft in the third century BC, around 220, and the man kills him for it. Kills his son for committing that theft. Orocious doesn't like it. So we see this shift back to the moralistic, but like on the completely other end of things, right? So rather than, oh, it was a good thing to do, upholding the Republic, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly it's like, this is horrible. Look at how bad the Romans were. They didn't believe in God. Oh my God. God forbid. Suddenly I'm using God so much. Okay. So this one's really interesting. We're going to get into a little bit of philology for a second. I know it's scary, scary, especially to historians, but it's okay. It's okay. I'll explain it all and it'll be fine. Okay. So really brief kind of aside, just to get our footing for a second. Okay. So in Latin, generally, there are like three main verbs of killing. So we have neco, interficio, and kaido. And so Neko can mean like execute, put to death, murder. There's like a lot of ambiguity, especially with the legal nature of the term. So it can lead to confusion regarding the specific legality of certain cases of the Wittai Nequis Potestas. So that's kind of like right in the middle, right? Of like, who knows if it's legal or not. Then we have Kaido, and that always means murder. And it always has like a very kind of violent sense to it, right? Because it essentially means like cut down. 
And so it has this very kind of visceral feeling of like violent murder. And so then we have interficio. And so that's kind of, again, very vague. And it means like to destroy, put out of the way, or like do away with almost. So it has this very euphemistic almost sense to it. And so really interestingly, we only really see Neko and interficio in the sources. Okay. So that was our brief little aside. So Orosius uses interficio. And so it does not have the ambiguities of Neko, which can be used in a legal sense. Interficio cannot. So in the other sources, they use Neko. And the fathers fear the term of parasite. But Orosius, his difference in language, he specifically uses interficio, which does not have the legal ambiguities. And he uses parakidio. So definitively calling him a parasite. So saying that it is not within the realm of potestas, or at least he doesn't understand what that means in a legal sense, but it's more likely that he's using it as a very powerful term, right? He's probably not confused. He's probably making that decision intentionally to kind of shock his audience, right? And so he essentially says that like this father killed his son, like for loudest, right? So like for praise. And so he essentially presents it as like a very severe punishment for a misdemeanor, essentially. Claiming that like the son probably only would have been exiled or like had to pay a fine or something like that. Orocious also only presents a situation as kind of like a one-off, right? So he doesn't even really consider it as part of this custom of Wita Nequis Quae Potestas underneath the umbrella of Patria Potestas. So he kind of essentially is like, wow, look at what was allowed back then. This is horrible. Instead of actually considering the legal implications of it, which I think is very interesting. Because personally, if I was trying to talk about how morally reprehensible the Romans were, and I was talking about a father killing his son, I probably would bring in the entire custom, right? I feel like that's much more productive, but that's just me. I mean, Erosius is definitely not giving the charitable view for Roman customs. I think you can even see in his choice of examples that he gives, like in this case, the father killed his son for stealing. This is by no means an attack on the state. This is very different from being part of conspiracy or trying to name yourself king, like in the earlier sources we saw in Livy and in Valerius Maximus. So there is this kind of underlying derision just even in his choice of sources, but I think nevertheless, you can still extract useful information just even looking at the Latin like you're going into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very interesting. Yeah. We're nearing the end of our timeline here. So can you summarize this for us and give us a quick and dirty list of like how to get away with killing your own child in early Republican Rome? Go. Absolutely. Okay. Here's how you kill your child. Number one, you have to be the pater familias and you have to be alive. You can't have a political position or you can be a private citizen. Doesn't really matter. Number two, you have to have a kid, right? You can't kill your kid if you don't have a kid. So number one, if it's a boy, they must have committed or have been accused of committing a crime. They don't actually have to have done it. It's fine. They also don't have to be convicted. That's also fine. Also, it doesn't matter how severe the punishment usually would have been if he was tried by the state. Also, it doesn't matter if your son has a political position or not. It's fine. You're the pater familias. You're in charge, whatever. If he does have a political position, you can either kill him then or you can wait until he's done. Again, pater familias, you can do whatever the fuck you want. If the child is a girl, female, the circumstances change. Since girls don't participate in the public sphere, they imagine that really can't commit as many public crimes. So her chastity must be at stake. Wow, imagine that. A girl's purity being the most important thing about her. Crazy. So she must already like be quote unquote unchaste or be at risk of becoming unchaste. Doesn't matter if she actually is. If you think she might be, you can go ahead and kill her. It's fine. Number three, you have to kill the child, right? You got to kill him, but you have to do it in a way where the sources are going to use the word neko and like it can never carry implications of parakidium. So you have to have the use to causa and then you can either feel guilty or not. It doesn't really matter, but you have to keep it private if you do. Yeah. So that's how you get away with murder of your child in ancient Rome. When you put it like that, the range of options available to you, like you just need to have 
good rhetoric skills, some kind of reasonable appeal to the people afterwards that they want to charge you for parasite. But with all of that said, <laughs> I'm going to try to like wrap up the interview uh, and bring it back to the larger scale of classics in general. Do you have sort of an idea about what classics is or what it means to you? Oh, gosh. So I think for me, part of the reason I love classics so much is exactly this kind of thing, right? Because like this combined with different poets or other kind of literature, it's amazing to read all of these things from several thousand years ago and still kind of be able to understand, oh my God, this sounds horrible since I just talked about killing your kids. But <laughs> I don't relate with that. I promise. I don't even have kids. But it's human nature, right? It's this kind of overarching sense of understanding that humans have always been this way. When you read Catullus or Marshall or any of these other kinds of poets who are writing kind of cynical, comical, whiny things, and you're like, yeah, I felt that. I understand what it's like to, I don't know, have my girlfriend break up with me or, I don't know, it's just, it's fun. And it's especially fun with classics because you don't have the same sources that you have for more contemporary history, right? You don't have all of those newspaper articles or photographs or even just like political edicts. You have men hundreds of years in the future telling you what happened, but they tell you what happened as very much coming from the future of knowing what happened afterwards. And so it's it's a really fun puzzle, especially on the history side of things, to kind of try and connect it all back together and look for things that have an overarching theme or maybe relate in very unexpected ways. And it's just a lot of fun. <laughs> I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Janan. It was really, really a great time to talk to you and to see you again. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. listening to my conversation with Janan Perkins about the power that a Roman father held over his children in the early Republic. Cover art for the podcast was created by Taya Kendall, music by Matthew Hawkins. Questions for this episode were generated with the help of Zoe Luchet and Emma Gauthier. Audio editing was also completed by Emma Gauthier. The podcast is created with financial support from the McGill Arts Undergraduate Society and the Financial Management Committee. We also thank McGill's Campus Radio, CKUT, for the use of their recording studio and equipment. Until next time, I'm Cindy Zhang, and thank you for listening to Tell Me Muse.